Hi, it's Nick Brown. Welcome you to this month's Atoms, the May Atoms. As usual, I'm in the studio with Rachel Egbeko, our senior editor. We'll be discussing some of the papers that for us stood out um, amongst a number of other very excellent pieces too. What took your eye in this month's edition, Rachel? There's a few things that I, that I noticed, but I'd, I'd like to start with that. It's, it's just so excellent that, um, that, that we have this opportunity to read um, such a wide variety of papers on, uh, on, child, uh, on child health. It's just so enjoyable. But I suppose in the, in the, in the context of our conversation uh, now, what, what came to me was really that we always just need to wonder, you know, do we really know what we think we know? And while we are wondering that, we also still have to make our decisions. We'll be discussing about five or six papers. Uh, and I think, Nick, that the, the first paper and accompanying editorial is a, is a good example of the, the real world abutting an open mind. Absolutely. And this, I'm, I guarantee, will be of widespread interest. So uh, Kenneth Maduemen and colleagues in Birmingham, in the Midlands, in the UK, share their findings in uh, their paper, Barriers to Paediatric Penicillin Allergy Delabeling in the UK Secondary Care, a regional survey. So the context is that our intent as clinicians is to prescribe as narrow a spectrum of antibiotics as possible. Um, that, of course, is widespread knowledge, but it's not widespread practice necessarily. Antimicrobial stewardship is not a nice to have as we face existential challenges with bacteria evolving well beyond antibiotics, even way beyond third generation cephalosporins. But in the face of wishing to prescribe penicillin and seeing a penicillin allergy alert, or even hearing a family history of penicillin allergy and a busy ED, what do you do? Many would contemplate the risk of anaphylaxis and understandably play it safe. It would be helpful if clinicians were not in that position or didn't feel that they were in that position and know that the label penicillin allergy was robust. Yeah, you know, I've, I feel for uh, colleagues in ED um, uh, and having to make those uh, decisions. So, so I think the authors um, have done a, an excellent uh, job uh, in trying to prevent uh, that from happening. So, so what they did was they surveyed a, uh, a population of um, paediatric practitioners uh, in the Midlands uh, and they received about 300 responses, including senior decision makers. And what the survey did, it explored several domains, um, including a clinician's approach to penicillin allergy via clinical vignettes, knowledge of the impact of penicillin allergy uh, and knowledge of oral drug provocation testing or DPT. And they also looked at perceived barriers to penicillin allergy delabeling. As you just said, we, we learned that most clinicians would play it safe. Um, but also, at least in that region, that there was a, a lack of awareness maybe of referring or even performing oral drug provocation testing. And at least part of the answer is making referral pathways more accessible, that uh, not just that they are accessible in that um, they are available, but also that people know where to go and people are able to perform them themselves. That is doing that in a, in a safe way. The area that wasn't so much explored but would be of interest 
um, is that it's absolutely vital that there's communication with families and primary care because you can do all the provocation uh, testing that you would like, but if it's not carried by the families or not heeded by primary care, um, then it's not uh, too much avail. And I think uh, Paul Turner uh, from uh, Imperial College London in the UK, who wrote the accompanying editorial, was quite clear. Um, he, he stated that non-specialist oral drug provocation testing is safe, has been around for about a decade, and we just need to get on and do it. We started with talking about an open mind. So from an open mind, going about querying whether a uh, penicillin allergy is actually an allergy. Let's pivot uh, and go to another example of keeping an open mind while in the meantime getting on with treatment. Well, I like that analogy. It's very much in keeping to that theme. This issue also features a paper about assumptions in the want of better expression growth monitoring. So Dr. Walker and colleagues at Great Ormond Street's Hospital in London present their findings on a new-ish treatment for X-linked hypophosphatemia, the fibroblast monoclonal antibody. And they looked retrospectively at a, at, a, at a group of children who were treated with the uh, antibody um, and their growth and serum phosphate levels. Um, the premise is that in the past, um, phosphate change uh, or increase in phosphate was thought to be a uh, prerequisite for adequate growth. But actually, they found that it probably wasn't. The, pa- the paper's about growth and it's a slightly niche area. The, the message is a universal one. And that they found that there was no real association between growth or successful growth and change in phosphate. So we need to rethink things sometimes. And um, the bottom line in this case was that a, a tape measure uh, or a stadiometer was as, was as good as a serum phosphate. And of course, that, that's the object of the exercise to enhance growth. As an intensivist, I wouldn't necessarily have um, burisumab in my um, arsenal uh, or it's linked hypophosphatemia. But what the authors did do is nudge me to think about all the markers that I might be using um, as taken for granted. But it may not necessarily be the case to focus on those. And there might be others that make far more sense. So, so that's, that's what I took from, uh, from this paper. Let's stay with growth as a topic. And, and I'm sure that there's not too many people who can argue um, that um, childhood growth um, is not important. Absolutely. So there are two other papers in this issue that also focusing on measuring and assessing growth. Um, One deals with head circumference and one with birth weight. And they both got global child health flavour and implications, but are generalisable really to any setting. Each challenged the assumption that um, normal growth is, is exactly the same worldwide. So we'll look at the first one, which relates to head circumference for children from birth to five years and a comparison with WHO standards by uh, Liling Hui at the Chinese University of Hong Kong and colleagues. And the other relates to birth anthropometry among three Asian ethnic groups in Singapore and a proposed new growth chart. And the group was led by 
Dr. Sensaki Sonoka and colleagues at the National University of Singapore. Both papers deal with what might be called standards, standards for growth expectation in this instance. With standards come expectations and exceeding them or not reaching them. So it's important where we set the expectations. So Dr. Hui and colleagues took on the challenge to follow up on a recent review which reported that the WHO 2006 growth standards expect a smaller head circumference at 24 months than actually seen in 18 countries. They set out to estimate the occurrence of microcephaly and macrocephaly at selected ages in different populations. And the authors identified head circumference for age references from different parts of the world, including the sample characteristics such as sample size, age range, selection criteria, and ethnicity, year of data collection and measurement method for head circumference for each of the references and the WHO standards. And they were able to compare those standards and more local growth charts by way of analysis. On the whole, if the WHO standards were used in the population studies, we would overdiagnose macrocephaly and underdiagnose microcephaly. There's always exceptions, and the WHO standards performed reasonably for Indians and some Asian neonates. Dr. Sensaki and co-authors studied data from just over 52,000 infants born between um, 1991 and 97, and then an additional group enrolled between 2010 and 2017 in Singapore. And they were stratified according to their ethnicity, either Chinese, Malay and Indian, to develop gestational age and gender-specific birth anthropometry charts and compare them to the widely used Fenton charts. Fenton charts are based on children with European ancestry. The authors found that the growth of the babies was comparable in the cohort, so ethnicity of the babies did not influence growth patterns. But when compared to the Fenton charts, there was a slower rate of growth at late prematurity, so in the three weeks or so immediately preceding delivery. So what do we learn from this? Well, again, the message, the recurrent message is keep an open mind when applying standards. When designing them, be as exhaustive as possible in describing the population. Here, one would need to make explicit what might be taken for granted. In exercising critical thinking, maybe. Anything else, Rachel? Mm. Well, I'm I'm contemplating um, how my colleagues tomorrow are going to really enjoy my ward round. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they'll be thoroughly entertained. There's lots more, of course, as usual, um, but these are the ones we've selected, and um, I hope you agree that our take-home messages are important. Um, I hope you can check out this podcast on either the usual platform through um, ADC itself or Apple and, and Spotify. There's, of course, much more in the issue, which you can get on the adc.bmj.com site. And we're already looking forward to another discussion next month. Thanks very much, Rachel, for today. Thanks, Nick. So we'll see you next time. Bye for now. Bye from me.